This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to This Week. From Canberra on Ngunnawal Country, I'm Melissa Clark. Coming up, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has visited India as the two nations build closer defence ties. But what progress is being made on trade and human rights? And the coalition's robo-debt scheme affected the lives of hundreds of thousands of Australians through illegal debt collection methods. So, as the public hearings for the Royal Commission looking into the scheme come to an end, what have we learnt? But first... It was widely predicted, but still difficult news for many. Alicia, there's news from the Reserve. We can confirm that the RBA has increased, as expected, the cash rate to 3.6%, the 10th increase in a row. Devastated. I know I won't be the only Australian who's going to be kicked in the guts by this. It's, yeah, it's heartless. It's like Robin Hood in reverse. Everything costs more, and I don't think that the banks have it right, because at the end of the day, All what I'm doing is getting more money for the banks and nothing's going back to the people. But there were hints from the Reserve Bank that a pause to rate rises might be too far away. However, the US Federal Reserve seems to be heading in the opposite direction, warning it's ready to speed up rate rises. Stephen Hamilton is Assistant Professor of Economics at the George Washington University. So we obviously had an extremely fast increase in interest rates, the sort of fastest since the early 1990s. And while the Reserve Bank's clearly not done yet, you know, in their latest rise, they indicated that more tightening would be necessary. Because we've come so far, uh, it's pretty clear that the, the end is near. Now, it's worth keeping in mind that we effectively had a pause in January. Uh, January, you know, the Reserve Bank doesn't meet, so we didn't have an increase in interest rates. Uh, And we've seen a couple of increases in the last couple of months. I'd expect maybe one more increase, and then I wouldn't be surprised if the Reserve Bank sort of decided to wait and see. Uh, The thing to keep in mind is that it takes a little while for interest rate increases to flow through the system. So, you know, the the Reserve Bank can hit pause, uh, and it'll take months uh, until the effect of that is, is apparent in the numbers. And so I could imagine they'll want to kind of wait and see how much effect that what they've done so far has had. Inflation has dropped a little, but it's still over 7%. And that's well above the RBA's inflation target of 2 to 3%. So even with a bit of pause and a bit of extra time, can it really drop low enough without further really significant rate hikes? It's a great point. So th- this is actually something that the US Federal Reserve has faced. So they started slowing their rate of increase, and then they noticed that inflation actually was much more resilient than they expected. And so in the last couple of months, they've had to shift back to potentially increasing sort of by a larger than usual amount. So I think the RBA will want to avoid that kind of situation where they have to backpedal. It almost happened uh, with a stronger than expected inflation number in in December, but recent data has suggested the economy is softening a little. You know, that that kind of highlights the, the, the incredible uncertainty that policymakers face right now all across the world. It, you know, we can't pretend that people face perfect information with a, with a, with a perfect crystal ball to see what the future holds. Uh, we're having to make decisions in real time uh, with data that lags many months uh, from actions. And, and in, in any situation, it's not quite clear whether 
you know, the risk is doing too much or doing too little. Uh, so we have to be a little forgiving with what the what the RBA is doing. I wonder if we're seeing that at the moment, because over the last four months, we've had those three Reserve Bank board meetings and the three statements that they've made about monetary policy seem to have different expectations about how many more rate rises yes. might be needed. Is that is that just because the situation's changing every month or or at risk of being too critical of the RBA, as you've just warned about it, does the Reserve Bank not really know what to do in this scenario? Well, that, both both are true. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so uh, it's true that the RBA doesn't know what to do, but it, it's also true that it's reasonable that it doesn't know what to do. You know, it's a very unprecedented scenario. We haven't faced uh, or we certainly haven't faced a pandemic in 100 years. Uh, we haven't faced a very high inflationary situation since the mid-1990s. So it's it's really quite uncharted territory. Uh, the key is look at the data, be open-minded, uh, calibrate your policy to suit that sort of evolving situation. Uh, that's what's happening in other central banks. And, and so far, it looks like that's what's happening in Australia. I think early on in the inflationary period, they were a bit complacent. I think they needed to get on it quicker, like other central banks. And I think they needed to move faster earlier on. And I think if they did that, it would have helped. Uh, and certainly, they don't want to pull off the the brakes too quickly because I think they want to make sure that inflation is really fully expelled from the system before they do that. Uh, that would be a very bad outcome if they didn't do that. Uh, but as well, they don't want to crush the economy. And I think at the moment, it seemed like that's the track they're on, that a kind of even keel is what they're going for. A lot of the inflation pressures due to issues like rent and housing, how complicated yep. is it for the Reserve Bank to tread that line, to to try and get the balance right, get inflation down, but not end up hurting a lot of people. Yeah. So, look, uh, this is something I hear often, and it's a bit of a misnomer. So, ultimately, inflation is determined by how much supply there is in the economy and how much demand there is in the economy, the balance between those two things. When demand gets out in front of supply, prices rise. That's inflation. And the Reserve Bank's goal to, to raise interest rates is to pull back on demand to kind of bring those two back into balance. Even if your inflationary situation is caused by limited supply, like an oil shock or a war in Ukraine, that still suggests that demand is too high for current circumstances. And so in, in those circumstances, it's perfectly appropriate to try and tap the brakes a little to bring inflation down to the target. And, and so, you know, yes, rents are high. There are all sorts of external factors causing inflation, but, but that doesn't mean the RBA shouldn't raise interest rates because if it doesn't, prices rise and we get the potential for sort of a prolonged period of inflation above the target. And that's got all sorts of negative consequences. At the same time, you don't want to overdo it. If you if you put the brakes on too hard and then those supply constraints evaporate, all of a sudden everything's fine, your interest rates are too high and you and, and your economy is going too slowly. So, you know, it's sort of calibrating those two things, looking forward over the next few years to look at how these things will resolve to kind of choose the right path for interest rates. Look, it's a very difficult decision, it's very difficult uh, circumstances. Uh, and certainly at the moment I, I don't have much to fault about what they're doing. As you mentioned, the the Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell uh, and their board is, is going through similar um, issues at the moment uh, in efforts to get inflation down and trying to tread that fine line. Uh, if inflation isn't reined in in the US, what does that mean for Australia? So this is a great 
this is really important. This is something that's not talked about anywhere near enough, including by our own reserve bank. So a big factor in inflation is the exchange rate, right? Because Australia is a big importing country. We import a lot of our goods and goods from overseas. So the price of those goods is heavily influenced by the exchange rate. And if Australia's Australian dollar is very, very weak, that means it costs us more to buy goods and services from overseas. In other words, it increases inflation. Now, when you have a, uh, the US with much faster inflation, much higher interest rates than in Australia, what that does is that increases the US dollar and that pushes down the Australian dollar. So there is a kind of follow the leader thing going on. If we don't keep our interest rates up with the US, we get a lower Australian dollar and effectively the US exports their inflation to Australia. And, and that, that has happened. So at the moment, the Australian interest rate is about one to one and a half percentage points below the relevant US rate, which means that our inflation rate will be higher than it needs to be. And so the Reserve Bank will be, I, I hope, uh, keeping an eye on that. If, if indeed the Federal Reserve does take a much more hawkish stance, which it looks to be, you know, much more tough on inflation, raising interest rates more than we expect, Actually, to some degree, the RBA has to follow suit. If it doesn't, the dollar will fall and Australian inflation will be higher. And in fact, in the last week, as the RBA looks to be a little bit more dovish, lower interest rates, the Fed looks a little more hawkish, higher interest rates, we actually see that the Australian dollar has fallen significantly and that will put an inflationary pressure on the Australian economy. Obviously, central banks are, are looking at that data, looking as much data as they can get their hands on, mm. very much driven by what information they can get. But economics isn't always an exact science. How much <laughs> of this is an art that central bankers just have to try and interpret? That's a great, that's a great question. Uh, you know, I, uh, I used to work at Treasury and uh, Treasury, senior Treasury officials make forecasts about what they think the economy will be. They have a model. And that model spits out a number. And the economist looks at those numbers and they say, ah, these numbers don't look quite right. And then they apply what they call, quote, unquote, judgment. And then you get a new <laughs> forecast. <laughs> judgment sounds very official and, there, but yes, <laughs> we're talking about thoughts. You, I, I'm a quantitative guy, but I will say uh, the, the version with the judgment exercise tends to be more accurate. So, no, there is there is a big dollop of judgment here and, you know, Philip Lowe doesn't get paid a million dollars a year to read the output of a model, right? Part of the job of the Reserve Bank board, part of the job of the Reserve Bank staff is to interpret that data and make judgments under uncertainty about the right approach. Stephen Hamilton is Assistant Professor of Economics at the George Washington University. The Royal Commission into the now notorious robo-debt scheme held its final round of public hearings this week, with a report due to be delivered in June. Already, the Commission has heard damning evidence detailing how bureaucrats failed to act on advice that the scheme was unlawful, even in the face of mounting stories of its impact on the lives of those wrongly forced to repay large sums of money. A federal court had already ruled robo-debt was illegal before the Royal Commission got underway. So what have we learned? And can we stop it from happening again? Dr Darren O'Donovan is a senior lecturer in administrative law at La Trobe University. He's been closely following the proceedings at the inquiry. I think it's how did robo-debt happen? What were the choices that drove it? 
And very often, RoboDebt was referred to as a glitch or a fiasco. The picture that emerges from the commission is so much more serious. RoboDebt cannot be referred to as a stuff-up, I think. It really is a multi-level system failure and also a failure of ethics, professional ethics, particularly in the public service. Can you take us through the biggest failings we've seen unveiled through the course of these public hearings so far? Firstly, the failure to act on legal advice. It is really shocking that across four years, the available legal advice on RoboDebt consistently said no. In 2015, when it was first proposed, the lawyers said, you cannot calculate debts this way. Legislation is needed. RoboDebt went ahead, largely driven by public servants. In 2018, a major law firm provided advice, which was dubbed catastrophic for the scheme. The scheme kept going. In March 2019, Victoria Legal Aid's first test case is put to the government. They receive advice saying, you're unlikely to win this case. We're going to lose. The scheme continues. So that legal aspect is so much more shocking than we ever knew. The other key thing about RoboDebt has nothing to do with the law. RoboDebt was an intrinsically unfair and unethical policy. And the Commission has managed to secure so much important evidence of how broken this policy was. When it was first created, the department had in its hands modelling which said debts calculated this way would be inflated. They also, at all times during the programme, they knew that people sent these letters would see them as threatening and confusing. And Commissioner Holmes, in questioning, one of the things she did this week was just talk about the law, yes, question people on why legal advice wasn't acted on, why questions weren't asked. Starting a scheme that your advice is unlawful, you wouldn't see that as maladministration? Yeah, yes, Commissioner, in the absence of other, of other advice. Or, yes, I think so, Commissioner. But the Commission always made space for one question. Isn't this intrinsically unfair? The onus you put on people on the margins of society. And that's a massive achievement from the Commission to show the total lack of evidence, the direct targeting of vulnerability by imposing administrative burden on the people least likely to be able to carry it. A lot of the public attention we've seen over the course of this Royal Commission has been on the evidence provided by the politicians and the public servants involved, but in wrapping up the hearings that the Commission is having, they've chosen to do so by hearing from those directly affected. What do you make of that decision from the Commission? I think it's a very important reset for how we cover social security issues and how we engage with each other. I really think it's healthy for Australians to push the politicians to one side. 
We need to do that more often. And the most powerful moments in the commission were when people, victims, spoke about the damage the deaths caused, but also what they were trying to achieve in their lives. And one fantastic woman we had the privilege of meeting was Sandra Bevan, a single mom to four boys, who was an Australian hero. And I, I don't say that lightly. She works uh, in disability support and palliative care. She suffered a horrific robo-death experience, which has resulted in, in her being determined never to access Centrelink payments again. My kids needed me. They'd already lost their dad, and I was trying my best to keep my house a roof over our head. It was just a really horrible time, and it was just made worse by these constant accusations of me doing, apparently doing the wrong thing when I went to such lengths to do the right thing. But we never hear people like Sandra on our televisions. We heard them at this commission. The commissioner will produce her findings in due course, but from your perspective, what do you think are some of the likely outcomes of this inquiry? I think everyone, if they, ha if they saw 30 seconds of the commission, everyone saw that this was a landmark failure for the Australian Public Service. We are definitely going to get recommendations that target and look to break up self-serving culture that was revealed in the Commission. The second thing that should be, um, is likely to be a focus, is going to be findings against individuals. Now, that is the Commission's role, and none of us are, you know, until we read the report, we can't make any comment about you know, what the evidence says about individuals. But it is likely that the Commission will recommend that professional bodies like the Australian Public Service Commission, that they run their own independent investigation to look at whether there are issues of professional mis misconduct. The third, I think, critical stream of reforms has got to be how are we going to help the people within the social security system to hold Centrelink accountable. This week we heard from the office of the Ombudsman and we saw a litany of failures by the independent watchdog that is meant to, to protect and defend the rights of people within the system. They failed to publish their concerns. They failed to speak out. And there is a profound challenge facing all of us to root out the bad practices at the front line of Centrelink. It's no good relying on people to complain up to tribunals. We have got to improve what people are copying on the front line. Dr Darren O'Donovan, a senior lecturer in administrative law at La Trobe University. India and Australia are forging closer defence ties due to shared anxieties about China's growing assertiveness in the region. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese was given a lavish welcome to India this week, spending four days with his counterpart Narendra Modi in three different Indian cities. Although Anthony Albanese has played down suggestions, his reception has been beyond that of any of his predecessors. 
Uh, well, that, that's for others to judge, but certainly uh, I'm, I'm very honoured, uh, not for myself, for Australia. It says uh, how valued the relationship with Australia is that the government of India and Prime Minister Modi have put such a major effort into making us feel so welcome. But opponents of the Modi government argue Australia should take care not to be seen to be endorsing the country's growing authoritarianism, which has seen criticism increasingly silenced. It's not the only point of friction. The two countries are somewhat at odds over the trade relationship. The problem is a a bit of a mismatch. What Australia wants is to export dairy products and agricultural products. It wants market access for those things that it's good at producing. What India wants is labour mobility. It wants to export its workers. Dr Priya Chako is a senior lecturer in international politics at the University of Adelaide. Migration is a very touchy issue in Australia and agriculture is a very touchy issue in India. So there are strong lobbies and strong political disincentives to open up those areas. Technology is a new area. India has a lot of startups, for instance, that are looking for investment and Australian companies could provide that. But the problem is Australian corporations have been quite gun-shy about entering the Indian market. It is a difficult market. You have to know it very well. So that's been a, a challenge, and I think that's going to continue to be a challenge. Look, there's certainly will on both sides to keep improving those links. And the diaspora links uh, of the Indian community in Australia is growing. There's, of course, the shared love of cricket, which is how Anthony Albanese kicked off his trip to India, um, heading to the fourth test in Ahmedabad. But do these aspects, do they gloss over some of the more serious concerns about India's government? Uh, Many are pointing to what they say are increasing authoritarian approach by Prime Minister Narendra Modi. How cautiously should Australia tread when it comes to this uh, enthusiastic embrace of India? Yes, so there's been a quite a well-documented slide toward authoritarianism for the last 10 years. Despite this, the Australian government has been emphasising shared democratic values that Australia and India share. It's been calling India a vibrant democracy. I think the calculation here is that Being publicly critical of India won't achieve much because its government is prickly and defensive. It doesn't take criticism very well, either from internal critics or external critics. And I think they're also thinking that perhaps highlighting democratic values will lead to emphasising their importance for Australia and India will eventually take the hint and this might stem its slide toward greater authoritarianism. That doesn't really seem to be working because India is getting more and more authoritarian. And India's slide toward authoritarianism has implications for the areas that Australia is hoping to to engage with India. So, for instance, in the technology sector, India is increasingly techno-authoritarian. It uses surveillance of WhatsApp data, for instance, to launch prosecutions against critics. So this is all going to be a bit of a challenge for Australia to navigate in terms of 
setting up the sort of free internet, free digital sphere that it wants to. Can I just get you to spell out for people who might not have been following Indian politics particularly closely, some examples of, and you've given a few, but perhaps just to spell out a little more, that slide into authoritarianism. Can you give us some of the the bigger elements, or particularly since uh, Narendra Modi has been Prime Minister, that we have seen that, that is contributing to concerns? One of the major areas of authoritarianism is press freedom. Narendra Modi doesn't give press conferences, but he's also been cracking down on independent media outlets. It's been uh, conducting tax raids, for instance, and uh, launching investigations of their funding sources. And all of this is meant to intimidate those media outlets from being too critical of the government. So that's one area. And most recently, it's actually been turning to foreign media outlets. So recently in the news, we had the BBC office raided on tax concerns. And this was because the BBC recently aired a documentary about India, which was very critical about Narendra Modi's role in the 2002 Gujarat riots. Um, It basically implied that Modi had a role to play in facilitating those riots. The Indian government hinted at irregularities being the reason for raids at BBC's offices. But for critics, the world's largest democracy has little tolerance for voices of dissent. Now, just moving on to some of those other areas, for both Australia and India, China looms as a big strategic threat. Can you explain for us India's motivation for working with the Quad, with working more closely with Australia, the US and Japan? Yeah, India's involvement with the Quad really stepped up a couple of years ago, and that's because its relationship with China deteriorated. They had a border skirmish and an ongoing disagreement about the drawing of borders that they share. That's still not resolved. Uh, But from that point, India started to view China as more of a threat than it had in the past. There's always been an ongoing border dispute, but they've managed to to deal with it by not really changing the status quo. Now the perception in India is that China is a lot more assertive, it wants to change the status quo on that border and that poses a threat to India. And on the Australian side, of course, its relationship with China has deteriorated quite a lot. So there's a merging of interest there with a perception of China being much more of a threat to both Australia and to India. So emerging of interest when it comes to China, but very different approaches when it comes to Russia. The Australian government wants global condemnation of Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine, but Narendra Modi hasn't done that. Why is that? India has a very long-standing special strategic partnership with Russia. It calls it a very special strategic partnership. Russia is a source of advanced weaponry for India that it can't get from anywhere else. And Russia is also a very reliable advocate for India in at the UN, the Security Council. So there's a long-standing relationship there. Apart from that, India doesn't want to be an ally, a formal ally of, of any group, doesn't want to be a formal ally of the West. It wants to be a pole in a multipolar order. And one way to do that is to cultivate a number of different relationships and Russia is one that it's going to to hold on to. So India hasn't condemned Russia for invading Ukraine. It's condemned the war in general. 
because it's detrimental to India as well. But it's not been condemning Russia in, in the way that Australia would like. Nonetheless, it seems like Australia has accepted that position and they've agreed to disagree. So that's not a huge challenge in the relationship at the moment. Between human rights and some of these big geostrategic challenges, uh, these are really big items on the agenda for Anthony Albanese and Narendra Modi. Is this a sign of how important India is to Australia's future and to its place in the world, I guess? Yeah, I think in terms of the human rights situation, Australia has been unusually uncritical of India. And I think that indicates how much Australia thinks it needs India on its side. Uh, in, in terms of developing an Indo-Pacific region, uh, which isn't dominated by, by China, either economically or, or politically. Dr Priya Chako is a senior lecturer in international politics at the University of Adelaide. Well, that's it for this week's episode. Now, if you like the pod, make sure you subscribe. This week is produced by Madeline Jenner, Nick Grimm, Anna John and me, Melissa Clark. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.